It's hard to imagine a person loving the Lord and not loving history. The history is God's working out of things through time. Things that he had ordained before the world ever was. Things he had decreed. It's also good to read about the past and what Christians endured different times, different places. Because we are so stuck by the tyranny of the times that we live. We look at where we are and say, oh, how bad it is and how worse. It can't get much worse than that. And maybe it's never been that bad. But in the 15th and 16th century, which are called by many as part of the medieval age, medieval itself is a word that is often misunderstood in our day. Some hear that word evil at the end and think that it must have been an evil time, but it's E-V-A-L, not E-V-I-L. And the word simply means Middle Ages. Midi equals middle, eval equals ages. It is the period between the Roman Empire's fall and the Renaissance. It's also the period where the Reformation began. Life was extremely difficult. Poverty, famine, plagues. As someone once said of the time, life was short, difficult, and dirty. The Black Plague, known also as the bubonic plague. Bubo, the first part of that, has to do with the eruptions under the skin, bleeding beneath the surface that caused the outer layer of the skin to turn black. And so then it was called the Black Death. It was spread by rats, fleas from rats, yes. But something that's not often told as well that it was spread from body lice, humans as well. No area of the globe was spared. Not only that, it did not come and go, but came in several waves over the centuries, from the 1340s to the 1600s. Some figures estimate that as high as 40% of the populations of some cities were killed by the plagues. As one man watched the dogs pawing at the mass graves of the plague death, he said, this truly must be the end of the world. Another remarked upon seeing dead bodies stacked up one upon the other, that they were stacked like lasagna. Good, you already ate. For those who escaped the plague, there was also tuberculosis to contend with. The present prophecy pundits would have a field day back then and would have been wrong then as well as today. It was with such an existence as a backdrop that the first catechism from the Reformation era was written. It's the Heidelberg Catechism. And the first question is this. What is thy only comfort 
in life and death? And the answer is this, that I, with body and soul, both in life and death, am not my own, but belong unto my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who, with his precious blood, has fully satisfied for all my sins and delivered me from all the power of the devil and so preserves me that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Yea, all things must be subservient to my salvation. And therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assured me of eternal life and makes me sincerely willing and ready henceforth to live unto him. What a beautiful picture of faith. And we celebrate on this day a work of God among his people called the Reformation. The term is important for the Reformation is not a remaking. We have detractors that will say, oh, well, you know, Calvin and the rest of them, they came up with new doctrines. No, they didn't. There was no remodeling. There was no reimagining, but a renewing, a returning to the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Certainly we rejoice in the work of Martin Luther, but there were many others, the bulk of whom are now forgotten with the passage of time. And though never completely lost the teachings of justification by faith alone in Christ alone, had been draped over by certain works and ceremonies and even financial offerings. If you read uh, Martin Luther's theses that he put up on the, on the door of the church, you will find that most of it had to do with indulgences, and we spoke of that before, people paying advance for their sins monetarily that they might be forgiven. Justification. I hope to, before my days run out, to instill in each and every hearer a love of that word. Justification. A right standing before God. Acceptance by him, seen by him as righteous. That's not a reformation innovation. It is the biblical principle of life. And we see it all the way back to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis 15, verse 6. God makes a covenant with Abraham. He tells him about his descendants, but also uh, the blessing that would come. In verse 6, And he, Abraham, believed in the Lord, 
and he accounted it to him for righteousness. So he believed, that is, he had faith. Faith in what? Faith has to have an object. In the Lord, and that was what? Accounted to him as righteousness. Justified, then, by faith. God spoke to Abraham of the promise, especially of the seed that would come from his body. We read, Abraham believed in the Lord, and he accounted it to him for righteousness. The true depth of that statement is often forgotten and escapes the apprehension of many minds. <clears throat> you know, there are three world religions that are claiming Abraham. The Muslims claim Abraham. The Jews claim Abraham. And Christians claim Abraham. Yet with this statement, this simple statement we see in Genesis 15, we see that really only one can claim him for something beyond their fleshly lineage. Only one can claim him as their spiritual father. And that's Christianity, of course. If you turn to Romans chapter 4, Romans chapter 4 and verse 9. <clears throat> Does this blessedness then come upon the circumcised only or upon the uncircumcised also? For we say that faith was accounted to Abraham for righteousness. How then was it accounted? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while still uncircumcised that he might be the father of all those who believe though they are uncircumcised and righteousness might be imputed to them also and the father of circumcision to those who are not only are not only are of the circumcision but who also walk in the steps of the faith which our father Abraham had while still uncircumcised. And then verse 19, as he continues speaking of Abraham, and not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead since he was about 100 years old and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God and being fully convinced that what he had promised he was also able to perform. Therefore, it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. The recounting of Abraham's offering of Isaac also shows the same thing in the mind of Abraham. The clear faith that we look at and we see that story and so many people say, why would God ever ask Abraham to sacrifice his son? And, and 
You get carried away with that, but you miss the fact that when Abraham had set everything up and he had set Isaac down on that place of altar to be sacrificed and he pulled back the knife to bring it down, the son child asked him, what are we doing? And Abraham said, perhaps the Lord will provide a ram. Perhaps the Lord will provide a substitute. And sure enough, here came the ram, the male lamb. And he was slain in the place of Isaac. See, Abraham knew what a lot of liberals running around today don't know about substitutionary atonement. That someone had to die in our place for us to be forgiven. We go to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3 and verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know only, know that those only, those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Notice in verse 16, it says, Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, And to seeds as of many, but of one, and to your seed, which is Christ. So it is said that he had the gospel preached to him. Well, one might say, well, it was good news that he would be the father of a nation. Of a nation. Surely that would be good news. But it went much further than that. The promise of the seed. A very important promise of the singular seed. The one to whom all the nations would be blessed. And someone might say, well especially if they're of the liberal side, they might say, well, you know, that's Paul. All right, let us go to John chapter 8. John chapter 8, verse 48 And the Jews answered and said to him, to Jesus, Do we not rightly say that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. And I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Most assuredly, I say to you, if any, anyone keeps my word, he shall never See death. Then the Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham is dead, and the prophets, 
And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he shall never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who is dead, and the prophets who are dead? Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my father who honors me, of whom you say that he is your God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I say I do not know him, I shall be a liar like you, but I do know him and keep his word. Well, then what happens next? They're, they're saying that they have Abraham as their father. They, they say that uh, uh, because they have Abraham as their father, they have God also. So Jesus takes what they are saying in verse 56. He says this. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. You see, Abraham, like all those in the Old Testament that would be saved, they looked forward to, they placed their hope in, they centered their faith on the Messiah that was to come. It's no coincidence that in Galatians 3, Paul narrows it down not to seeds, but to the seed, which causes us to look back to Genesis 3 and verse 15 and the promise of the seed of the woman who would crush the skull of the serpent. Jesus was the object of the faith of Abraham. Not some nebulous idea, but Jesus himself was the source and fixture and object of the faith. And for Abraham, it was not just a future reality. It was a present one as well. How do we know? Well, the rest of what Jesus says in John chapter 8 and verse 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. Okay, don't stop there. And he saw it and was glad. There you go. He saw it. Now, if you press me on the meaning of he saw it, I will reply that it was not just a manner of seeing it as a reality, but also seeing it as in its meaning. Was like when we explain something to someone and they say, ah, I see. I understand. So he not only saw, but he understood who the Savior was, who the Messiah would be. Now there's also this. If God has promised something is to come, we can refer to something that's sometimes called the prophetic sense. And that is, if God said this is going to take place, then we can put it in present tense because for sure it's going to happen. If God says it's going to happen, it's going to happen. So it's as good as done. So we can even call it a present tense kind of thing. 
It is a reality if God says it's going to come to pass even if it hasn't come to pass yet. Abraham saw that great truth. It was revealed to him. The gospel was preached to him. And in Hebrews chapter 11, when they list the, the great hall of fame of faith, if you want to put it that way, Hebrews 11 and verse 10, it says of Abraham, for he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. Abraham was looking for a city, waiting for it to come, which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. In Revelation 21 and verse 10, we read, and he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. The city built by God. Also, let us never forget, Abraham had a a meeting, if you will, an encounter with the pre-incarnate Christ when he met him as the angel of the Lord. Now, why is this so important? It shows us that at the very beginning, when God began to call out a people of his own particular possession, the one who would be the father of them all, the one who would be the father of them all is the one who was the first to be recorded as believing, having faith, and being justified by that faith. And so all who are of the same grace of faith are his children. Paul wrote, For I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded. I am persuaded. Though you and I, on different times and days, may feel stronger in faith than the other days, our object of our faith never changes. Never changes. Our confession puts it like this, faith, thus receiving and resting on Christ and his righteousness. <clears throat> and there it is. The real substance, truth of faith. You may have many things on this earth that you draw comfort from. Many things that bring you comfort. But the only, only comfort in both life and death is faith in Christ. <clears throat> For all of us, there's coming a day when the number of breaths that we will have left are very few. 
And perhaps we might have the blessing of when those last moments are there and we might even have clarity of mind and have our family all around us. And we might be deriving great comfort from having them all around us. It still is a temporary comfort. Because the only true comfort we can have in that time is that we belong to Jesus Christ. And that faith in Christ will not only be with us in this world, but will take us into that one which is to come. There is no family member can do that for you. No pet. No possession. The greatest comfort you can have in this life, as we were reading in the Heidelberg Catechism, as it coming out of that terrible age of time, yet it spoke of comfort. Isaiah was told to comfort, comfort the people. The greatest comfort we can have is that we have faith alone in Christ alone. I want to close with just two verses of Scripture in Romans 5, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine those words as life ebbs out of us firmly ensconced in our minds and in our hearts. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God in, the, in which we stand already. The hope of the glory of God, but not yet. This life, this age, and the age to come, all secured through faith alone in Christ alone. Let's stand together for prayer.